Good morning, EBF. My name is Chipper. Uh, about two and a half years ago, you sent myself, my wife Kristen, and now we have a three-month-year-old uh, daughter, three-month daughter Molly. You sent us out two and a half years ago to plant City Church in downtown Gainesville, Florida. I know how things go in Evanston. A lot of you weren't even here what, two and a half years ago, but believe it, it actually happened. And so we have been um, there for two and a half years now. And of course. I always kind of view church planting with a little bit of suspicion. It's a nice way to get rid of people you don't like, right? So John comes to me and he's like, man, we've really loved having you here, but if you would maybe start a church a thousand miles away, that would be fantastic. And I felt the same way when we were meeting with some churches in Gainesville uh, to kind of recruit a core team. I would have these meetings with pastors and they'd be like, yeah, you should, you should really take the Johnsons. They would be just fantastic on your team. Um, but... No, I think it's, it's a wonderful thing, and EBF has planted several churches, and I know that you have a vision to plant even more, and I applaud you for that and praise God for that. I think that is, that is one of the most important things to do if we want to see people come to know Jesus in this country and in other countries. So Kristen and I were sent out from EBF two and a half years ago, and during that time, we have, of course, been receiving some very wonderful, joyous updates about the life of EBF, and we've rejoiced with you at the same time, we are also aware that many people in this congregation in the past two and a half years have suffered, have struggled profoundly, and I want to tell you that we have been mourning with you even from a distance. City Church has experienced a similar journey. We've celebrated wonderful things, including our our one-year anniversary, and in May, our second-year anniversary, which is a delight. We've celebrated the birth of Lots of children, we've celebrated some baptisms, uh, graduations, and on and on and on. But others in the church community have experienced significant tragedies, unfortunately, in the past couple of years that we have been in existence. And uh, my wife and I have not been immune to that. Two months after we moved from Evanston to Gainesville, Florida, uh, I was preaching at another church in Gainesville on Sunday evening. And during the middle of the sermon, I actually had to stop preaching and take a phone call from my mom. And my dad was on a Sunday afternoon bike ride. An 18-year-old kid decided to go get his hair cut while he was high on marijuana, hopped in his car, drove down the road, drove off the road, killed my dad. He was dead instantly. Cops showed up at my mom's door while she was planning dinner for my dad. And so I got that phone call all heck broke loose. We are still dealing with the ramifications of that today. Let me tell you, even though it has been approximately two years, and unfortunately, other people in our congregation have dealt with similar kinds of tragedies. And if you think about it, it's a crazy community that you live in. Think about what's going on in Evanston. There are people in your community today that have wonderful jobs locked up for them. Graduation is just around the corner. They can't wait for what's next. And in the same community, you have people who at hospitals within miles of this very church will start cancer treatments this week. That's the community where you live. As Christians, we recognize that the world we live in is broken. And that we are broken people living in a broken world. And that is why we repent of our sinfulness and turn to Jesus, the only one who can rescue us. But the difficult fact remains that despite the salvation we have in Christ, our world is not 
how it should be. We're saved from our sins through Christ, and that's what we're going to celebrate in a couple of weeks at Easter. But we're not yet saved from the presence of our sin. We live in a sin-stained world. So the question is, what do we do in the meantime? Specifically, how do we interact with God while we live in a broken world? How do we relate to God in a world that is not as it should be? And the answer to that question is that we lament. What is a lament? Webster's Dictionary describes a lament as the act of expressing sorrow, regret, or unhappiness about something. Biblically speaking, a lament is simultaneously an honest acknowledgement that things are not as they should be, as well as a hopeful longing for things to be made right once more. And so it is therefore fitting that we discuss Psalm 85 this morning, since Psalm 85 is in fact a lament. And as we consider this psalm, we will better understand how we might lament in an honest, yet God-glorifying fashion. I'm excited to consider this because I think that biblical, God-glorifying lamenting is one of the more neglected aspects of faithful Christian living. And as we meditate on Psalm 85 together this morning, we will consider four aspects, four components of biblical lamenting. Remembering, pleading, listening, and hoping. Remembering, pleading, listening, and hoping. You are in a series right now, I believe, in 1 Samuel. At least that's close. And so we are jumping into a book that you haven't been considering in sequence in recent weeks. So I want to set the table for you a little bit before we jump in to this text It's hard to pin down exactly who wrote Psalm 85. There's some debate. Some think it was the King David, the Israelite King David, and others think that this is a lament from a community of people represented by the sons of Korah, who we really don't know much about other than the fact that they were Israelites and their dad was Korah. For a few reasons, I lean toward the sons of Korah as being the authors of this psalm. And we know that the Israelites were in a very difficult situation when this psalm was written. They may have been living in the promised land and dealing with frequent attacks from their adversaries. They might have been dealing with some agricultural issues which happened in the life of the Israelites. Or it's possible that this psalm was actually written after the Israelites had returned from exile in the hands of their adversaries. The thing is that the Israelites experienced all of these things in their history, around the time that the Psalms were being written. So any of these things is a possibility. But to be clear, the focus on this Psalm is not on the specific situation that the Israelites found themselves in. The focus is on how to interact with God, given the difficulty of the situation. So four components of the lament, again, we're remembering, we're pleading, we're listening, and we're hoping, and let's start with the first one remembering. Listen with me to the psalmist in the first three verses of Psalm 85. Psalmist says this, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. So the psalmist begins the limit by first remembering 
the ways in which God has acted in the past. And the psalmist focuses specifically on God's salvific acts, the ways in which he has saved his people, the Israelites in the past, including being favorable or gracious to their land, even to the point of restoring Jacob, or that is Israelites' fortunes. God has forgiven the iniquity or sin of the people to the extent that he covered all of their sin. And then God at times has withdrawn all of his wrath, even turning away from his hot anger entirely. God didn't just cover up the sin and kind of stuff his anger. He wiped away their sin and did away with his wrath, wrath that they justly deserved because they were rebellious people. God had been angry with Israel before to the point of having white, hot anger. Yet he wiped that anger away. So God saved them, not because of anything the Israelites did, but because of his grace. Surely the psalmist has a lot of events in mind in the history of Israel. One that I would bet you a million bucks he has in mind would be God's patience with the Israelites and forgiveness that he showed them when they rebelled against him at Mount Sinai when they worshipped a golden calf in the place of God. The question is, why is this remembering important as a part of a lament? Why is this important? It's, It's important because the psalmist is reminded of the mighty acts that God is clearly capable of doing. As, as God says, for example, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 32, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? And additionally, not only is the psalmist reminded of these mighty acts that God is capable of doing and has done in the past, he's reminded that all of these mighty acts that God has done are because of God's grace And they're not based on merit because the Israelites are somehow better than anyone else. That's what the argument is in Deuteronomy 7, where God makes a point to say that the Israelites were shown favor and being delivered from slavery, not because they earned it, but because God the Lord loves them and is faithful. And so here the psalmist reflects on that reality. And in doing so, by reflecting on God's mighty acts and his grace in showing those acts, It simultaneously emboldens him, and it humbles him. He can ask for big things. He can ask for huge things, because God has gone before them in the past. The psalmist knows what God is capable of doing, but he's going to ask, as we'll see with humility, because he knows that any favorable action from God is completely undeserved. So remembering puts us in a more appropriate frame of mind before we plead with God or vent our frustrations and anger. Imagine jumping off a school bus after your first day of school. Pick a year, any year, fifth grade, sixth grade, whatever. You get off the bus and it's kind of a hard day and you see your parents maybe in the window and you're like, man, I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. How could they send me to this prison of a school? And you're mad and you're angry and you're walking up the sidewalk and then Say, for example, you stop right before you talk to them and you take a moment to recount personally and remember the things that they have done for you in the past, how they've nursed you and swaddled you and cared for you and taken you on a few vacations. And then going forward with the beef. You still have some beef, but by remembering the things that they have done for you, it will soften you a little bit. It changes your tone. It puts you in more of a conversational, constructive mode than a demanding 
mood. So when we lament, it's important that we spend time focusing on the grace of God and his mighty acts in history and, and in our own lives. It, it's important that we do this even in the worst of circumstances, including when doing so feels kind of forced or kind of half-hearted. Because the thing is, God works through our remembering, even when our motivation is off. He uses it to change and to reshape us. It is a massive myth. A massive myth that walking with God is merely feelings-based. As if you just become a Christian, and then everything that comes next in your Christian life is effortless and natural. You see those kinds of claims on infomercials for ab machines. It's false for your abs. It's false for your faith. So remembering can feel forced at times. It, could, it takes effort. It felt forced a lot of times when I was wrestling with why in the world my dad was no longer on the face of this earth. And I had to experience the, the pain that was just unbearable at times. But the reality is, is that remembering is, is worth it because it reminds you before you plea, before you go to God, that you're dealing with a God that can act and has acted in history. And by the way, this is one reason why we need Christian community, because at times we need help remembering. At times we need help remembering. We need someone to come alongside us in the midst of our pain and say, remember how God has worked in the past and how he has sustained you to this point. He remains faithful and he is gracious and he understands exactly what you're dealing with. Even when we might not be in a season of lamenting, personally, we are still called to lament with others who are struggling to help them remember So it's important to remember, and that sets the stage for the second component of our lament, pleading. Or pleading. Verses 4 through 7, the psalmist pleads with the Lord to save the Israelites once more. Listen to what he says as he pleads. Verse 4, restore us again, O God of our salvation. Verse 6, will you not revive us again? Verse 7, Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Clearly the Israelites find themselves in a bad situation, and they need the Lord to graciously deliver them from their affliction, as he has done in the past. As the psalmist has just remembered. And the psalmist recognizes that at least some of their situation is directly a result of their sinfulness. There are consequences for their actions And thus the need for God's grace, thus the need for God's salvation. So on what basis does God, excuse me, does the psalmist make this plea for deliverance? On what basis does he make this plea? Well, he makes this plea based on the character of God. He makes it on the character of God. See verse 5. Even though it's, it's phrased essentially as a rhetorical question, the psalmist says to God, I know. I know you're not a God who will remain angry forever. You delight in showing mercy and grace. Your desire isn't to smite. It isn't to destroy. Because that's not how you've acted in the past. The psalmist very likely has in mind God's revelation to Moses. For example, in Exodus 34, 6-7, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression 
and sin. And as the prophet Micah says in Micah 7, God does not retain his steadfast anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Additionally, the psalmist makes his plea for deliverance not just based on the character of God, but on the glory of God. On the glory of God. See verse 6, the psalmist says, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? In other words, Lord, deliver us that we might glorify your name by rejoicing in you. Deliver us for the glory of your name that we might praise you and that others would join us in praising your name. So even though the psalmist is in a bad spot, the plea is still God-centered. It's not a selfish plea. He makes his plea based on his desire for God's people to be satisfied in him. That's what's going on in verse 7. The psalmist longs for God's salvation, for forgiveness, and for a right standing before God so that the people of God might be fully satisfied in God alone. Because disobedience, sin, unfaithfulness, because of all of those things, all of our best laid plans do not ultimately satisfy, no matter how promising they may seem on the front end. So he makes his plea based on the character of God, makes his plea for the glory of God, and what we see the psalmist doing is that he's, he's pleading in accordance to the revealed will of God. That's what he's doing. The psalmist makes his plea based on what he knows to be true about God. He's not making arbitrary pleas. He's making pleas based on how he knows God wants to act in the world, based on God's extraordinary, steadfast, perfect, and faithful love. And he's basing these pleas on that steadfast love, so central to the nature of God, because that love is his and everyone else's only hope. So when we lament, our pleas should be God-centered according to what is revealed about him in his word. We want to plea like Christians who are honest, yet God-focused, and said of me, focused. Here's the thing. Scripture invites us to pour out our guts to the Lord, to plead for changes, to plead for deliverance, to cry out to him when you're in the midst of suffering, things you don't understand, things that are confusing, and say to the Lord, these things are confusing. I don't understand these things. I don't like it that you're doing this right now in my life. That's biblical. We see that modeled for us in the Psalms and in other places. But we still want to plea in a way that acknowledges the character of God for His glory and for the sake of our satisfaction in Him. That is a powerful plea, and that's the kind of plea that most honors the Lord. So we see that the psalmist remembers and then he pleads. And then we come to the third part of this lament, listening. And I'm looking now at verse 8. Let's listen to the psalmist in verse 8. The psalmist says this, Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. For the psalmist, lamenting is not a one-way conversation. He pleads with the Lord. Yet he also desires to listen to what the Lord will say concerning all of this. And this makes complete, complete sense. If, 
If we believe that God is the God of the universe, all-powerful and wise, then we're going to want to listen to him. Charles Spurgeon, a great British minister who lived in the 19th century, and by the way, struggled with terrible depression. Talk about a guy who had cause for lamenting. He says this, he says, When we believe that God hears us, it is but natural that we should be eager to hear him. And we do well to listen to God, for as the psalmist says, he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. It is only God who can speak true and lasting words of peace. Let's listen to Spurgeon again on this. He says, only from him can come the word which can speak peace to troubled spirits. The voices of men are feeble in such a case, a bandage far too narrow for the wound. But God's voice is power. He speaks and it is done. And hence, when we hear him, our distress is ended. And what are these words of peace? They are words of assurance that God will, in fact, answer their plea. That he will restore and revive and grant salvation. That God's kingdom will prevail and there will be peace or shalom once more. And the psalmist expects these words of peace because he knows God has acted for their deliverance in the past and that he is a faithful, promise-keeping God who will not fail to act on behalf of those who plead with humility and patiently wait on him. So what does it look like for us to listen like the psalmist? To listen to the voice of God? Well, we need to ask the question, how does God speak to us today? How does God speak to us today? And the answer to that question is, primarily, he speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through his word. And in the very pages of the Holy Scriptures, the very words of life, which means that listening to God then entails very careful investigation of his word and also meditation on it. And what do we find in his word? What we find in his word is words of peace, on a scale that the psalmist couldn't even fathom. For example, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, we see that this multitude of angels congregates in the sky above a group of shepherds and proclaims, in verse 14, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And why are they proclaiming this? Why this message of peace? What does it mean? Because... Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So in the midst of our lamenting, we must listen to God. And what do we hear when we listen to God? We hear a message of peace that surpasses all understanding. That the Son of God, fully God and fully man, came to earth as a baby, lived a perfect life, died, rose again, that he might deliver us from our sins And ultimately make all things new. So when we're wrestling with the world that is not as it should be, we must listen to God and his word. And what we find is that God broke into this world when Jesus was born, that he might deliver us and that he might identify profoundly with the sin-stained plight of mankind. So let's listen to the God who has experienced the suffering that we endure on earth and has given us a way forward through Jesus Christ. I wish I could go on and on right now about this idea of of God suffering, but I don't have time 
So what I'm going to do is I'm going to come back in two years, and we'll talk more about this. Here's the saying, when we lament, it is easy to make a plea without taking time to actually listen to God. It's understandable because when we're hurting, our natural inclination is to complain without listening well in response because we're frustrated, because we're mad. It's like calling a customer service agent when that pair of jeans you ordered and the mail doesn't come in. I ordered a pair of jeans a few months ago and it's like, this company that hitched a tiny wagon to a turtle and put the jeans in the wagon and the turtle just walked them down I-95. And so I was, I was kind of frustrated and I was calling them. I was like, hey, where are my jeans? And after a while, I noticed I'm doing all the talking. I'm not even listening to the customer service agent. How is this agent going to help me if I'm just talking and talking and talking and flapping my gums? The answer is they really can't because I'm not listening. So listen, we must, and we must listen rightly as well. There are a lot of notions out there about how to listen to God. Some are very helpful. Others concern me at times because I've seen some things that seem to pull from spiritual streams that are they're pretty much divorced from Christian doctrine. But at the end of the day, here's what we do know about listening. When we pray to our God, including laments, we must prayerfully meditate on Scripture and yearn for understanding, since God delights to communicate with us through his word. Scripture is the headquarters for God's communications department. Scripture is the headquarters for God's communications department. Sometimes we need to hear a gracious word of comfort from those pages. Sometimes we need to get put in our place, and it's all available right in the word of God. And God will use it providentially to meet our needs. So when we lament, we remember, we plead, we listen. And then this brings us to the fourth component. We do all of this with hope. We do all of this with hope. I'm looking at verses 9 through 13. Let's listen to the psalmist in verses 9 through 13. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. And righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. That's some confident hope right there. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. But it's justified hope. It's not wishful thinking. Why? Because God is faithful and perfect and steadfastly loving. He will not fail to deliver his people. And this hope is what distinguishes Christian lamenting from all other kinds of lamenting. There's a lot of lamenting going on in the world right now. Think about the lamenting that has gone on in Africa in the last few months of day. They have dealt in parts of that continent with Ebola. Think about the lamenting that has gone on in places like Ferguson and New York as they've dealt with racial conflicts and regarding the race conflicts, by the way. Protesters and journalists and people on social media, I've seen them asking, why are things this way? Will it ever stop? Can we change? Or will this stuff just continue forever? Listen to the words of one of these protesters and grieve with me as you hear these words. This is one of the protesters. uh, This is what one of the protesters said. They said, 
in Ferguson as things were unfolding. I just started crying because there is no hope for us. There is no hope for anybody. What can I do? What are we living for? They're lamenting, but there's not an obvious reason to be optimistic. But Christians lament with hope. Knowing that the suffering we experience now, whether from our own sin or because we live in a sin-stained world, is temporary, and that we have been delivered and will experience that deliverance fully when Christ returns. We lament with hope because we know that Jesus, our ultimate peace, has come to earth to deliver his people and to conquer all sin and death and even mourning. And we know that when he returns again, we will experience peace to its fullest degree. So may the peace of Christ therefore comfort you this morning as we long for the day when, as the psalmist says in verse 10, when righteousness and peace will kiss each other in perfect and permanent harmony. If you're here this morning and you don't proclaim to know Christ, please, please know that peace is possible. It's possible. Deliverance is possible. Maybe you've thought, like the Ferguson protester, that there isn't any hope for anybody, but I'm telling you this morning that there is hope through Christ, and simultaneously any other attempt at finding peace will fall short. You know, my mom is still getting interview requests from media outlets because of the circumstances of my dad's death. And every time these uh, video crews come in, sometimes it's from local TV stations, one of the things she does every time is she preaches the gospel to them. And she says, usually they're really uncomfortable and it's awkward, but I preach it every time because that's their only hope. It's possible even for you this morning. To those of you who are troubled, to those of you who are troubled, listen, statistically, there are people in this room who are troubled this morning. Lament during the season as Easter approaches. Long for restoration. But remember that we have it in Christ. The peace the psalmist longs to hear has been declared at Christ's birth and secured through Christ's resurrection from the dead. In verse 12, the psalmist delights and restored and fruitful land made possible by the grace of, of God. But get this, a far greater land is ours in Christ. And the land that I have in mind here is this new city, a new shining and perfect city that we will ultimately reside in forever. That's what Revelation talks about. That's what we have to look forward to. That's our inheritance if we're in Christ. Long for this and rejoice in it. And for those who are doing relatively well this Easter season, I say to you, lament with others. Lament with others. John Stark, a pastor in Manhattan, he says this about biblical laments, like the one we find in Psalm 85. He says this. He says, laments poke us in the chest and force us to wonder whether we are making light of the suffering in our own congregation and community. I've heard wonderful things about people lamenting with others in this community. Keep it up. Keep it up. Press into that. But let's never get too comfortable. Let's always be asking, are we caring for people? Are we lamenting with those who are lamenting? Are we making light of the suffering that is going on in our own congregation and beyond the EBF community? So who do we need to lament with during the Easter season? Who should we be coming alongside of during this Easter season? It's an important question. 
to think about when was the last time we came alongside someone and, and mourned with them. And like I said, there are people here right now, this morning, that would love for you to come alongside them and lament with them and to mourn with them, to process with them. So will we walk with them and will we lament with them as they struggle? Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful that you are a God that because of your grace, you, you free us to struggle, to wonder and to question. And you give us the tools, Father, such as the ones we see in Psalm 85. And I do pray that we would leave here as a people willing, Lord, to remember and to, to plead with you. Father, to listen and even to hope. I particularly pray for those who are lamenting in profound ways this morning that you would be near to them, that they would experience the peace of Christ in miraculous ways and that people in this congregation would rally around them as I know they already are. And Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.